Not really, actually. Which I don't know if it's something I should be proud of or like ashamed. A sensible person would have some doubts, but I did not. My first three years in bubble, I had no income, right? I think I was living in New York with something like 25K a year, and I was perfectly happy. At the end of the day, I truly believe this is the best marketing strategy when your users are telling people, hey, don't lose months and tens of thousands of dollars trying to find engineers. Get your product, build it on Bubble quickly, like in two weeks or something, launch it and get feedback very quickly for a very low cost. I'm Emmanuel Strashnov. I'm now 36, originally from France. And after a few years in China, I moved to the US about nine years ago and started a company called Bubble in 2012. And what we're trying to achieve with Bubble is kind of the holy grail of technology, which is let people do things with computers without writing code. And what we're trying to do specifically is let them build software and program without code. So effectively, our value proposition is to tell people, hey, you have the idea to create something similar to Facebook or Airbnb. You can actually do it yourself now with a visual tool instead of struggling and trying to find engineers or raise a lot of money to pay an engineer. So if someone want to check out your website during this interview, it's bubble.io. Yeah, bubble.io. Okay, so they can check that out. And even if I pop up on that page, it says you don't need to be a coder to build software. So you're basically trying to help people make coding easier. Can you just explain a little bit more in detail exactly what Bubble is? So it's a visual programming language. What it is effectively, it's two things. It's a visual interface that people will be interacting with to create the app they want to build. The applications you can build today on Bubble are web applications. So web application being a website that does something like, you know, Airbnb.com, Facebook.com, Twitter.com. Usually there is database that might connect to external services. So much more complicated than a website for your wedding, for instance, or personal blog. And the other thing that Bubble is, is a cloud platform that hosts everything. Because if you want to run such application, you need a server to centralize database and everything. And so we manage that for our users transparently, so they don't need to worry about it. The reason why we call that visual programming is because it's extremely open-ended. There is a little bit of a learning curve. Depending on people, it takes between two to 10 hours, I think, to really get a good sense of how things work. But after that, it's pretty much limitless because by combining the different elements you have on the page, so, you know, there can be images, inputs, text, buttons, all these things, and then creating workflows, describing what the application does by saying, when the user clicks on this button, do this, do this, do that, you can get to a very refined behavior and basically build anything you want. And once you've built it on our platform, then we take care of the hosting for you and you don't need to worry about servers or anything. We make sure you know things don't go down and things scale as your user base scales. I think you gave a perfect example. It's like I've created a website for my podcast. So I used WordPress and it's very simple. Or you even said something like a wedding page. Let's just say a one-page website that someone might set up using like Squarespace or something like that. Where that's very simple. You don't have a lot of interactions. But if we're going to use a program like yours, you're saying like Airbnb, Facebook, Yelp. If anyone's thinking about it, every time you click different things on there, it uses a database, right, to take you to a certain page. So it's way more complicated, all the interactions between the feed and all that. I'm not even talking about the Facebook app. We're just talking about even like going to facebook.com or whatever. You're saying that using your programming language, I don't know anything about programming, but you could easily help me set up a template to try to interact with these pages and I can build it myself even if I don't know any programming. Exactly. You'll have to learn the tool, but you don't need to write code. It's really a change of medium. Coding means, you know, typing some text that is pretty complicated and more understandable by the computer 
very complicated for people. Right, exactly. That is more understandable by the computers and the human who's typing it. It forces you to think like the machine and write and talk like the machine. We change the medium with a visual interface. And to get back to your description of what you can build, it's basically all those websites, Yelp, Facebook, Twitter, what they have in common is what they display and show is basically user-generated content. And that's the big difference between a WordPress website like yours, where you as a website owner are pushing your own content to creating something like Airbnb, where Airbnb is not the one creating the apartments. Airbnb just created the platform and then you have sellers that will submit the apartments and buyers that we rent them. You see the distinction? Yeah, it makes it easy so other people can easily create kind of on your website domain, if you will. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Usually what most web startups are that, essentially. Most web startups are creating platforms where, you know, other people create data and then another side interacts with it. All the same people interact with different set of data. It's kind of funny because actually, I think I mentioned this before to you, before we got started, when we did a pre-interview. It's basically, I used the bubble when, before I even started the podcast. I was just testing around with it and just kind of seeing what you could do. And I think I was following, there was a guy who's putting together video demonstrations on how to replicate Airbnb. And again, I had no coding background or anything, but I could easily figure out, it's kind of almost like PowerPoint, if you will, where I could put on one slide how I wanted it and then the next slide, how I interact if I click a certain button. And that's kind of what bubble was doing. I was just jumping around trying to see what else I wanted to do after I got done with kind of what I was doing with the commercial real estate field. And I just thought it was very cool and interactive and easy to understand, like you were saying, versus me trying to go to coding and figure to take years to even try to put together a simple template of like an Airbnb site versus using something like you. Yep. If someone wanted to go there, I mean, could you just tell us a little bit about the pricing and what type of people actually use this software? Is it people who are just kind of getting into trying to understand this stuff or just give us a little bit better idea of who your actual customers are? Yeah. So our customers are non-technical tech-savvy people, which is a very fast-growing group of people because the younger the generation, the more tech-savvy they are because the more they've been exposed to technology very early on. In terms of who they are, it can be a student in business school or in college trying to start some projects to see where it goes, to an analyst as a big company trying to solve a problem for his team because the IT department is being slow at building the thing traditionally to a non-technical founder, so someone out of school who's been struggling to find some engineers and decided to build a product himself. That's this kind of people. And the way our pricing is structured, it's actually structured in a way that we only start charging people large amounts when they start doing well as a business. First of all, it's free to build. We don't charge you to access the software to create your application. We only charge you when you want to launch it to the world with your own domain name. So that's the trigger. And after that, it scales with how much traffic you have. So it starts at $29 a month. The vision is really, you should be able to run a web business for less than 50 bucks. So that's why we choose 29. So that gives a little bit some room for some other tools you may be using to send emails or stuff like this. And then if you start having a lot of traffic, then, you know, it can go up. I think today our largest users pay us about four to $5,000 a month but they have like massive traffic and actually a lot of business. We estimate the saving for them by a factor of 10 probably because when you pay to Bubble, when you use Bubble, you don't, of course, you know, buy the servers yourself with Amazon or another provider. You don't need to hire, you know, the engineering team to do it. And given the cost of an engineering team and a DevOps team, you know, to make sure things don't crash, you save a ton amount of money using a platform like ours. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like what you were even saying is that if you work for a company, let's say someone who's listening now and they had some idea and they're working within the business and they're waiting for the tech team to try to develop it or whatever, 
anyone who's kind of tech savvy, I think you've mentioned that that's kind of perfectly what I am. I consider myself as like, I don't know anything about coding, but I can usually figure stuff out. And yours makes it easy enough that you can kind of figure it out. But someone within a business could easily put together at least a template or whatever and show their boss or whatever. Like, this is what I envisioned, how we could make our website better and get more interaction. And can you give us a couple more examples of actual companies that maybe we could check out that actually use Bubble to expand what our thoughts are of how we could use it? Yeah. Our most impressive example is based in San Francisco. We've been on us for a long time. So we've seen, you know, the whole journey of a company, you know, starting on Bubble, getting actually acquired by another entity and keep running on Bubble after the acquisition. It's a fintech startup, and their product is to offer loans to people that want to install a solar panel on the roof. So something fairly financial, and they make the money between the interest they're getting and the money they're getting from investors. And their strategy was to go to net, uh, solar panel installers and offer them for free CRM tool, where you can have all the different houses that you're working on. And through that platform, when an installer would go to someone's house, the installer would give them an iPad and the homeowner would be basically entering his personal information to get his loan approved. And everything was packaged in one product. So the homeowner applies for the loans, gets approved, and then the installer has a CRM where you can see all the different projects, report the progress, and eventually get paid through the platform. And they've actually built this entire web platform on Bubble, so without engineers. And it got to the point where they've processed more than a billion dollars of business volume, so a billion dollars of loans through a bubble-built software without engineers. This is really to give an example of very complex thing that would probably require a team of at least 10 engineers to build and something that actually works at scale because, well, a billion dollars is a lot of money. And they started using us in August 2014, and five years later, I mean, almost six now, they're still using us today, even after the acquisition. What website is that if someone wanted to check it out? dividendfinance.com. Okay. Do you have like maybe one or two more examples? And then we can talk a little bit more about your story. Because again, I think if they go to a website and check it out, yeah, I'm seeing dividend finance. If I go to that, that's all built on Bubble right now. I think their marketing page might not be actually because it's a very static thing, but the actual product that they sell is, which is the most important part. Right. And another one that you would see, we have this company in Paris that created a comet and they created a marketplace for large corporations to fight data science freelancers because large corporations actually have a hard time finding data scientists on a full-time basis. It's a pretty standard way to see the marketplace, like an Upwork type of thing where you have freelancers on one side and people that are looking for freelancers on the other side. And they've scaled their business to $800,000 entirely bootstrap without raising a dime through a bubble build software. And after that, I think today they've raised something like 13 millions. And what was the name of that website? You said that kind of quick, so I wanted to see. If... Comet.co, I think. C-O-M-E-T.co, I think. Oh, Comet? Like as an asteroid or a comet? Yeah. Okay, I got you. So yeah, I'll just look at that. And then you said it's free, obviously, for people to sign up. So I guess they could just look in there and I imagine you might have templates or something that maybe they could look at? We do, actually. Templates not built by us, built by the community. So we have a marketplace where people exchange create things, either templates or plugins. I guess we'll get in a, a bit later today in what plugins are for. And so you can sell them. If you want to start from something that has already been built by someone, you can buy a template. Yeah. yeah. And where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions. And I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, 
There's a lot of things that I spend money on, like the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, glad I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of fascinated because I remember when I tried a couple of years ago, and obviously you're still at it doing Bubble.io, but it's just to me, when you make something simple for people like who can kind of figure it out, because there's no way I would have the time and patience to go to coding school or anything to figure it out. But when you take something that seems really complex and you can make it simple for people who are listening, who haven't even started their own business yet, or maybe they want to take their website and maybe there's a way they can use databases to make it run a little bit more efficient and cooler is that I just think your type of branding, making it simple, makes it really easy for people to get started. So that's why I was kind of excited to have you on and again, for people to check it out. How big is actual Bubble today? Like how many employees do you have? And can you tell us a little bit about revenue? So we have now 21 employees, I think. I'm hesitating because we're literally adding one person a week right now. Okay. I thought you were about to fire somebody. That's why. No, no, no. It's been pretty quickly. So I think we have 21 people right now today. We have a little bit of a non-traditional history because we bootstrapped for many years before raising our first round. And we bootstrapped to a little bit more than $1.6 million in all recurring revenue before we actually started raising money. In many ways, we decided if you want to build a real company, you have to create something that creates values that is profitable first before trying to scale it. Now we're in this phase where we've built that initial product that was selling, actually was letting us sustain the team. When we raise money, I think we have like 10 people. So it could, 10 people could actually live like on market salaries with our revenue. And now we have this phase where we decided to scale. We raised a seed round of like a little bit more than 6 million in April last year. The reason we raised was the no-code space, which is something people that listen to this podcast might be aware of because it's something that is more and more um, talked about, is really heating up. And so it's important to be present now. Okay. You said the what space again? No-code. Oh, no-coding. Like as in no-coding? Is that what you're talking about? No-code? Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a new concept that uh, we take some pride in pioneering that space and actually making it start because I think we're the first companies that started in that space seven years ago. Okay. I was going to say again, what year did we start? 2012, 2013? 2012. That is actually interesting because I think I've realized that too. It seems like there's more no coding stuff like you're saying, but it seems like you were one of the first, if not the first. I think we were the first one actually, but it's hard. I mean, there might be some people I'm not aware of, but of the larger players in the space right now, we were started a little bit before Webflow, I think. All right. Well, I think we got a good background on how people could maybe use your software, or just even play around with it. I always think it's cool just looking at different tools on how we can make our businesses better. The only thing I would say by using it is, and this is where we have a little bit of a different positioning and communication than other tools is Bubble is extremely open-ended. And so it will require some learning time at first. You have right now in the market, a lot of products that within five minutes, you expect it to be able to do something great. It's great, but don't be naive. That means they are restricting a lot what you can do because it's just not possible to have you do something very customized in five minutes. Customization means you need to learn how to use the tool first. And so the only thing I would say, I very strongly recommend, and again, it's free, when people want to discover what Bubble does to go through the lessons, we have a few interactive tutorials at first that show you a way to click to do things because that's the best way to start understanding the fundamentals. And if you do that after an hour or two, then things will start being much easier.
Because, yeah, there's even like WordPress templates or even set up a, a website. Some people act like you can do it in five minutes. It's going to take at least a couple hours, honestly, by the time you do hosting and everything and putting it all on a certain domain, buying all that stuff. So it's still even easier than that. But there's some tools that act like you can drag and drop and get it done in five minutes. And you probably can, but then it's not custom at all versus yours is like kind of in between. It's not, obviously you don't have to be a coder, but then if you just spend a couple hours fooling around with it and one weekend, you can just play around with your off time and see what you can do with it. Cause it's not like it's super easy, but it's not super hard either. It takes some time to try to understand this type of software. Our goal is to find the right balance between, and that's why, you know, we're targeting like tech savvy, non-technical people, people that are like computer literate, but don't know how to program. Our bet is that for one programmer, like one coder, you probably have a hundred people that just fits the description that said, as the description I've just said. And so our goal is to multiply the number of people that can build software by hundred, just by empowering all those 99 people to do things and program. I have good understanding. And I thank you for making sure people understand, just to make sure you at least take a couple hours. It's not going to be something that you can do right overnight. But why don't we actually talk about your story and how you actually started Bubble? I know you obviously said, we can tell from the accent that you're not from the United States. Right. I'm from France. Yep. I don't know what's the best year you want to jump in here about maybe before you started Bubble, and then we can talk about those early years and starting it. I actually got into like professional tech fairly late when I was 29, so in 2012. But my first experience with coding was, I think, in 95 or 96, so when I was 12. But at that time, it was a very different stack from compared to what we have today. I mean, it was under MS-DOS and Windows, and I was building you know, little applications to help me first. And then I was distributing that to my classmates in France to learn English and German words, like vocabulary, because you have to learn those words. And it's, I created this thing where the computer would ask you the questions so it would help you remember them. Nothing like, you know, rocket science, but first of all, realized that you could create things by typing things on a computer, which was really cool. And I also had the fun of distributing them to my classmates, actually sending some of them. I was like, wow, it's pretty cool. I mean, you type some stuff on your computer, you can make a little bit of money. I ended up probably making $100 in total. So not crazy amounts, but it was a very rewarding feeling when I was 12. When I got into college, I did math, physics, and computer science, but I never thought I would be a programmer. I was pretty French in that sense. So my first career aspiration, believe it or not, was to work for the French government because that's what French people do. Working for the government is a very renowned type of thing. And it's something that a lot of like French people that go to good schools are pretty passionate about. And so I started thinking about that. As I was going through the process of picking somewhere to work, I started thinking before I do that, maybe I would want to spend some time abroad. And then I decided to move to China. The Chinese thing coming mostly from the family reasons my parents are both French and Caucasian French, but they actually met in Beijing in 78. And my father grew up in Taiwan. So it was something pretty strong in the family. I decided to move there in 2007 and then ended working there for almost four years as a management consultant. Okay. 2007. So your mid-20s, early 20s when you moved there with your family too, you're saying? No, no, I was alone. I was 24. Okay. I just moved there and looked for a job, found a job, stayed there for almost four years. Let's pause that real quick. It sounds like you want to jump ahead, but I'm just curious. You wanted to go there because your parents met there once upon a time? I was interested. I wanted to live abroad. I was interested in Chinese culture. I had been exposed to it very young, started learning the language at 12. And so it sounded like you're like 24, you want to go abroad to start your career somewhere. Well, it could have been London, could have been the US or China or some other countries I had been more familiar with, but I was already familiar with China. So it was just making sense. When you're going over there, did you have any intentions of what type of job you wanted to do or anything like that? I was pretty open. 
I was looking at like large industrial companies, investment or investment banking. That was before the Lehman Brothers crisis, a little bit of a different time. And I ended up being a consultant, which is pretty similar. I actually had a great time. I think that was like the best way to discover China because the firm I joined, even though it was a Western consulting firm, it actually turned out in China, most of the clients were local clients. So mostly working for Chinese companies. And so I ended up spending at 24, 25, you know, I don't know, three months with China Mobile just to work on their pricing strategy or working for a real estate developer in uh, Guizhou province, which is Southwest, actually the poorest province of China. That's the kind of experiences that I think not many people would have at my age and the exposure to China, which was really, really fun. So were you putting like tracking software in my cell phone? No, that was before I think this whole thing came out. I'm just kidding around about that. As a consultant, you know, you mostly do slides, uh, to be honest. But I said, and these were some interesting business practices. What interesting business practices did you see over there? First of all, I saw some extremely ambitious entrepreneurs. That was my first exposure to very, very ambitious people. So one of the products that I did was for the branding of um, companies that you wouldn't have heard of, but basically was aspiring to become what Xiaomi is today, high-end device of China. And they were doing cell phones. And so the ambition they had when we were working with them, they just were working in one province in uh, Guangdong province. And the expansion plan they had for China was like insane. I mean, they were like, we're going to conquer China basically within the next 24 months, which they did. So they had, they had some issues and then Xiaomi took over the leadership on that market. But so watching that was very impressive. Like it was a time where China was growing, not like today, you know, they were growing like between eight to 10%. Some people actually were saying it was even more, but they were understating that because they didn't want people to be worried they were overheating. So being exposed to that business where literally nothing is impossible is something that is very, very interesting. What was the name of the company that you were saying that you saw with the expansion plan? The Bubugao BBK. I don't know if they're still around, to be honest. Okay. Probably are. And so that was just like a cell phone company or? Yeah. Okay. I mean, they were doing other things, but the division I was working for was cell phone. Right. As far as running a business there and stuff, are people, I don't know what it is like to run a business there. Can you tell us the differences of how you run a business today versus how they did it over there? I guess I know as you're more of an analyst role, so it's not like you were an owner trying to figure it out, but is there anything else that we should know? I think one thing that a lot of people have hard time understanding when they go to China is the, the value of what's written versus the value of what's in the conversation and in the relationship you're building with people. So we had a saying, for instance, in consulting, you know, the way it works is you send a proposal, the client will say, okay, they start paying and you deliver what's written in the proposal. That's the way things happen in the US where you're saying, okay, we're going to study this market, and then the scope is defined. And in fact, if the client wants to change the scope, there is a new negotiation for the price. In China, it doesn't work that way. In China, the proposal is more mutual commitment of working together. And we had this joke that once the proposal has been signed, you can throw away the proposal. Likelihood the project will be different from the proposal is extremely high. And that's okay. But you need to be aware of that and keep the communication with the client at the top level of the team, so the partner level of the consulting firm, to make sure that the scope evolves based on what the client is expecting. Then the client is not unreasonable. I mean, if the partner would tell them, look, this is really much more and I need more people, you need to pay more, they will. But the right attitude is not to say, oh, we're going to do what we agreed on because in the spirit of the client, they agreed to keep talking to define that scope, if you see what I mean. And that's true for consulting and that's true for a lot of business relations. People say it's hard to do business in China because they miss this part. They think that once they agreed on something, they're going to have it, uh, it's all set and all easy. Well, you should always keep the line of communication open and personal connections. So not just, you know, emails, it can also be phone calls or like dinners or spending time with people to make sure we stay on the same page. 
you did that for about four years or so you're over there in China? Yeah, a little bit more than three years. Okay. So you decided to move. Where do you go next and why do you decide to move from China? So what happened at that point, I was debating between going back to France, potentially going back to actually working for the government or not being sure exactly what to do and figure out something else. And so I applied to business school in the U.S. as a way to discover the U.S. and also give me a little bit more time to figure out what I wanted to do. And eventually that's what I did. So I applied to Harvard, got admitted and went directly from Shanghai to Boston to start my MBA. Did you make a good amount of money in China? No. I mean, I had a pretty cheap lifestyle. At that time, China was cheaper than it is today. So you could live in China with a fairly low cost. How much in the U.S. would you say? Are you saying like 30000 a year or something like that? Even less than that, actually. So that was pretty low. I think now it's different. I mean, prices have gone up dramatically in Shanghai. So I left Shanghai with I don't know, a few tens of thousands of dollars of savings, but nothing massive. But I mean, as an analyst, I'm not expecting to make much money, to be honest. Right. When you go in, it's more the education, right? Just being able to understand that and stuff. So I was just trying to get a feel because I have no idea how much it even costs to live in China and all that other stuff. So I think that's kind of interesting part of your story. So then you decide to go to Harvard and do that for two years? Right. Okay. And then it opened a period of an intense self-discovery. So when you get into business school, you have to write essays, right? About what you want to do. What I wrote, and I really meant it, was not just to get in, was I wanted to go back to China after business school and start doing investment between Europe and China. So I interviewed with a few finance firms during my first year for the internship, ended getting a few offers. And the last day I had to answer, I was like, well, actually, I'm not sure finances for me sounds a little bit boring to do Excel models till late at night. Let's try to do something more fun. And I ended up spending my summer in fashion in New York. I was the chief of staff of the CEO of Prada USA in New York for like 12 weeks or something which was really, really, really fun. And I'm glad I did. And in many ways, I think it was kind of a turning point in me personally and then professionally. Personally, it was, I think if I try to read a little bit what was happening in my head is, you know, I got into business school. Business school is supposed to lead you to investment. So you should be doing investment. A little bit like thinking about external factors, deciding what I should be doing, which a lot of good students actually have that behavior. And me turning down objectively what was better, which was those financial firms to go for something which sounded cool on paper, but it's not really what people would do during business school, you know, fashion stuff. Let's just go for what I'm really interested in. Turned out that my interest in fashion was pretty short term. I mean, I did a seminar that was interesting and then realized, well, it's entertaining. It's not necessarily what I want to do in the long term. I use the same thinking to try to figure out really what I wanted. I ended you know, graduating without a job, actually, because it took me a pretty long time, about like eight months to reflect really on what I wanted to do. And I graduated after I graduated Harvard in May without a job, thinking at that point that I wanted to go back to technology because I used to do this as a kid 20 years or like 18 years prior. And that's how I got introduced to my business partner, Josh, who at the time obviously was not my business partner. And we started talking and decided to found the company together. The interesting thing is we actually decided to partner on Bubble on our first coffee. So it was a little bit of a rush decision for some reasons, but seven years later, we're still here. Yeah. So basically when you're going to Harvard, you're in Boston, right? We're right yep. outside Boston. And then you graduate, you're still trying to figure out what you want to do. Are you just in Boston and that's where you meet your co-founder you're saying for Bubble? No, I met it in New York actually because I had graduated. And so I was going back and forth, Boston and New York just to figure out, to talk with people. And so he's one of the people I talked to. I was introduced to him through uh, some mutual friends. So isn't that expensive or did you have still student loans? That's the reason I asked. It seems like it'd be kind of expensive trip from you coming from China to go to Harvard for a couple of years. And then if you're going to New York, the most expensive place, at least in the US. That is very cheap. Boston to New York used to be done with $20 in Chinatown buses. So it's very cheap. And then I would stay with friends here. 
since we bootstrapped the company for all this time, my first three years in bubble, I had no income, right? I think I was living in New York with something like 25K a year, and I was perfectly happy. It is possible. You can do that too long. You can do that with a family. But if you decide, and had I been working at a company, I probably would not have been okay with such a low salary because it is tough. But if it's your own project, it's definitely possible to do it for some time. So you moved down to New York and then just tell us about meeting your co-founder and just kind of how you brainstormed the idea. And then you can tell us about trying to live on 25K in New York because I didn't know you could do that. But let's first talk about the co-founder and then talk about your living situation and whatnot over the first couple of months, at least of starting the company. So Josh started the company late 2011. At that time, it was not even a company. That was more like a project he was interested in. It was not incorporated yet. And he realized, I think after like 10, 12 weeks, that it was a very ambitious project. I still think it's a very ambitious project. And it was not very reasonable to try to do that alone. And so started putting the word out there to his friends to introducing some people. We got introduced late June. And so as I was saying just earlier, we partnered on our first coffee because what happened is when I met him, I actually had got an offer from a startup in New York. It was a pretty short time offer because I already had graduated. So they wanted an answer within a week. Startups sometimes want candidates to move fast. I met him on Thursday and my offer was expiring on Friday. It was a pretty good offer, I guess. They were taking care of my immigration status, which as a foreign is always something stressful and important and necessary. I remember sitting in this coffee shop in New York telling Josh, it's great to meet, but I have this job offer, so I'll take it. But let's just chat. And maybe in a couple of years from now, we'd be able to do something. And we started talking a little bit about Bubble. I mean, at that time, it was not called Bubble. We came up with the Bubble name together. So it was something else. But talking about the idea, which was very much what it is today, actually. The product obviously has changed, but we haven't pivoted in terms of mission goal. So we started talking a little bit about this, what he had already done, which was pretty limited. I mean, it was a pretty simple prototype, but already had some thoughts of how to tackle some things. And then we started talking about a lot of other things. One of the conversations I remember was I think philosophy, because I used to write a lot about philosophy in college, even though I was in a science school. I was writing stuff for the local magazine, and he was himself a philosophy major at Harvard. So we had some kind of a bonding over this. And after like three or four hours of conversation, I mean, he needed to run, I needed to run. I mean, do you want to give it a try? It sounds like that could be fun. And I did not say yes on the spot because I want to think a little bit about it. And I actually called the person that put us in touch because I want to do a little bit of due diligence on him. But I told him yes the following morning. You basically told him yes when? The next morning, you said? Yes, the next morning, yeah. Wow. I mean, how much were you offered, for example, from that other firm that you were talking about? Because it sounds like you had to take a obviously big cut if you're going to help him with this. I think it was 120K or something. I mean, that was a good offer for a startup. Yeah. So the very next day, you're like, hey, let's do this. Yeah. Well, it's kind of still amazing because you just met him really 12 hours probably beforehand, right? Yep. We weren't worried at all. Anything you would do or suggest that if anyone's trying to find a co-founder like in this situation? Would you do it this exact way again or any suggestions on how you might do it differently? No, because I mean, that can be planned, right? This is really like kind of a fate thing, like two people meeting and, oh, actually, you have some kind of intellectual chemistry that makes you, oh, it feels like it could actually be working out. I think school is a great place to find business partners. I think a lot of people do that either in college or business school or former colleagues. Honestly, I don't have enough experience to be giving advice on how to engineer that. Right. Well, I think the main thing is kind of like what you said, if anyone's getting an MBA or whatever, it's like putting fillers out because everyone's going to need a job after they get out of school. So that's kind of the point of you going and trying to figure that out. 
but you telling friends or your co-founder telling his friends, hey, I'm looking for a co-founder. So I guess not being worried and just being able to put that out there to people that if you're just searching Google, trying to find a co-founder, it's probably much harder to find than at least if you're telling business people or whatever that, hey, you know, I'm trying to look to do something in this area. Do you have any suggestions? And it sounded like, I guess that's what worked out for your co-founder in finding you. Exactly. Yep. We start and you're full-time in New York now, the very next day, or are you already permanently living there? No, I was in Boston. So it was Friday. On Saturday morning, I went to Boston, sold my furniture, gave back my apartment a few weeks prior to the official end of the lease. And, and I moved to New York and started full-time on Monday. So where'd you move? Tell us about this. Obviously, this is a big turning point in your life, right? Because you're starting a company versus before being with a company and getting your MBA. Yeah. I mean, it was really exciting. It sounded like, wow, I'm actually starting something. Like the first few weeks, I was, you know, interesting mental state. It was the first time I was starting a company. I actually never thought I would be a founder. So that was really fun. It was a process of finding a place to live in New York, getting settled. Yeah. So did you just find roommates off Craigslist or did you move in with your co-founder? No, that would have been a little much. I mean, right. I would not recommend anyone to live with their business partner. You know, at some point you need some time to see other people. I found a roommate from business school, from my class. What part of New York were you living in? I was in the Canal Street, so nearby from Chinatown, South Soho area. Would you meet up at your buddy's apartment or did you already have like a working space that he worked at? Or We had coffee shops and free spaces first. And we took an office, I think, after 12 weeks. But even then, an office being like a co-working space thing. So at that time, now it has gotten up. But at that time, I remember it was like $350 a month per person. Wow, that is pretty cheap too. So, all right. Yeah. So yeah, you're working in these coffee shops and stuff. And so how are y'all splitting your roles? Like, did you already have that figured out before you even started? No. And in fact, what we envisioned in the very early days has turned out not to be what happened because initially I was not technical at that time. So I used to be technical in high school, but I hadn't been technical for 10 years. I was supposed to be the business guy and Josh, the tech guy on the team, pretty traditionally, how you would split responsibilities. But what I realized and he realized pretty quickly is once we're done with incorporating the business and stuff like this, we're working on something that requires a very good product before you can actually sell it to people. For the first year or two, I thought like, I'm not sure there's going to be too much business to be done here. I have to be on the product. Effectively, after I think six to eight weeks, I started learning how to code again. And I started contributing to the product after maybe three months. And now we're basically both technical now. I mean, it tends to do more like database type of things. I tend to do more um, user-facing product, but it's a detail. And how are y'all getting any revenue? Did you put any money into the company? Or that's what I'm trying to figure out too. Because like you're saying, it took a while. We both put, I think, like 20 or 30K or something just to make sure we had some cash on the bank account. But you have to realize starting a business today, and that's very much what Bubble is trying to achieve even further and let non-technical people to do that. But if you're a technical person today, starting a business is very cheap. You know, you can be having service from Amazon for like $10 a month if you don't have too much traffic. The office will cost you maybe $1,000 in total for two people in a co-working space. And that's pretty much all you need. If you don't need to pay salary, and then you can use your savings as a way to live. It's not capital intensive. At some point, you know, your savings go out and then you need the business to start paying you. And we got to that point, I think, after two years and a half. So after two years and a half, we had found enough users to start having like a real income for the business and then personally as salaries. But initially, you don't need to put too much money in the business. Right. I agree with you. It's mainly the living expense, like you're saying. Bootstrapping is a pretty healthy way to start a business today. That was much more complicated 20 years ago or 30 years ago in the tech space or outside because I think even when Facebook started, Amazon didn't exist. So you would have to, I think they bought some servers. It's expensive. It's a capital investment. 
But today, with a lot of the modern technology, it's cheaper. And again, with Bubble, we're aiming to make that even cheaper because if you're non-technical, you don't need to worry about finding technical talent. You're saying it took two and a half years to finally get money coming in, or was it even faster than that? We got money coming in within six months, actually, but it was not enough to have a meaningful salary. So we got a meaningful salary two years and a half in, yeah. Okay. So were you even paying yourself out anything or just a zero till y'all both ran out of savings? Yeah, it was basically zero until we got ourselves. Not we didn't go to zero, but when the business could pay something like seventy, seventy-two thousand dollars, that's when we started taking salary. Okay. Yeah, because these are just the little things that you wonder, like how long you worked on it till you say you got a meaningful salary, like two and a half years is a long time, even though you're still young and living cheap. I think that's what a lot of the people who come on here preach as far as understanding that living beneath your means. But it's still a long time to wonder if this is going to kind of work or not. So, I mean, during those first 2012 to 2015 or so, do you have any doubts that this was going to work? Not really, actually, which I don't know if it's something that should be proud of or like ashamed. A sensible person would have some doubts, but I did not. I was pretty convinced that I couldn't say for sure what we were doing what would become huge. I mean, it's not huge today, but I think it will. And I think the market and the recent trends have shown that we're right, that it's what the kind of things we're doing will become huge in the future. Was convinced very deeply and intimately in, from the early days till today, and that's what the reason why I was not really doubting anything, is that it's very much needed. I think it's extremely important that someone tries to do what we do. And so when you're convinced that what you do is super useful, if what you're driven by, by is that sense and not necessarily, you know, the financial short-term compensation you're getting, you don't ask yourself too many questions, you know, you just go for it. And was it just the two of y'all for the first couple of years? For the first five years, yes. Oh, wow. Was it all in this co-working space? No, no, we moved uh, another one for a year. We decided that after we had worked together for like two years and a half, we knew each other very well. We're like, maybe we don't need actually to spend $1,000 because it's not that much, but it's still $1,000. Um, why don't we just work at coffee shops? So we were working at coffee shops for about a year, which was very pleasant. Something that I did find very enjoyable. Like the freedom, the freedom. I would work a lot in France, basically, and that was very pleasant. How many hours were you putting in, would you say, like a week? Basically working all the time. I mean, especially when you don't have employees and you don't go to an office and you work at coffee shops, there's not much difference between Wednesday and Saturday. So definitely working every day, sometimes full-time, sometimes part-time on Sundays, but probably something like 70 hours a week, I guess. Is this all consuming where you, did you have any personal life during these first few years? Yeah. In some ways, what I'm describing sounds tougher. But in some other ways, it's extremely free. When you don't have investors and don't have employees, like you really control your time better than anyone else. And so if you want to carve out some time for dating, you definitely can. We take for granted that the apps that we use can connect and stay connected over the internet. Domain name systems, AKA DNS, makes that possible and are one of the most critical pieces of app infrastructure. Architecturing and managing reliable global DNS infrastructure is tough especially when you consider the growing number of deployment options and distributed architectures. For example, app services can run anywhere on any cloud, stack, or platform. And while developers are great for helping develop an app, well, they're usually not DNS infrastructure experts. F5 cloud services have made app delivery and security so simple that anyone can set it up. And not only that, you can set up F5 cloud services fast. When you're on a small team, you need services that enable you to be agile and move fast and with confidence. F5 Cloud Services expertise as a service lets you achieve worry-free DNS infrastructure in minutes. See, F5 delivers DNS tech with SaaS. 
It's designed for app developers and DevOps teams who want to move incredibly fast. Give your apps the DNS infrastructure they deserve with just a few clicks or API calls so that you and your team can spend more time innovating. F5 has 20 years of experience in the app services and they know what you need in order to implement a great performing app. So if you have an app or you're about to get started on one and you want to help support our show, well, now's a great time to start F5 Cloud Services because F5 is offering a free trial for our listeners. Just visit f5.com forward slash millionaire. That's f5.com forward slash millionaire. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I was delaying it for whatever reason. And the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and that's it. So I'm very happy with it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back? It was just uh, taking the time to do it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located? Here in Bolivia, in South America. Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions and I'm just there to facilitate it. And I think the thing is too, if you're learning something new and you're enjoying it, when you're putting in quote unquote, like maybe 70 hours or whatever a week, it doesn't really feel like work if you're enjoying it. Like you're saying, you don't know if it's Wednesday or Saturday when you're working. If you're still having fun doing it, then once you start counting those hours, it's like maybe because you don't enjoy it as much and that becomes more of an issue. But if you're enthralled about it and excited about it, then that'll keep you going. So what's the biggest obstacles over the first five years? You said it was just you and your co-founder. What was some of the hardest stuff that you had to go through? Was there anything challenging that maybe we could learn from? Yeah, a lot. I think one thing that was happening was pretty specific of what we're trying to do, which is something like a visual programming tool, which honestly is not a new idea. A lot of people have tried to do this over the years, even like Apple with HyperCard, Yahoo Pipes, Visual Basic and FrontPage in some ways from Microsoft. So it's something that a lot of people have tried to tackle, that you need to go to market with a product that's extremely good. Otherwise, the level of skepticism is so high that people don't even try. And even today, if you have some engineering friends, what do you think of the idea of being able to build software without writing code? I can guarantee you that today it's 30%. Five years ago, that would have been 80% of people would say it's just not possible. To fight that, you don't want to go to the market with a minimum viable product that's too simple and too limited because you're almost going to confirm their thesis that it's not possible. And so the big challenge we had to do was to focus on the product for the first five years to really get to a point where Actually, even like when engineers would look at it, we're like, wow, it's actually very powerful. And that was the toughest thing, being deep dive on the product for all these years without many users, honestly, like probably a few tens of them that we would work very closely with, including that company I mentioned earlier, and not necessarily seeking exponential expansion, press, or visibility, because that would have been too early for us. It can be tough. Yeah, so I know you make it easy for us as a consumer if we want to test it on your website, we can go test it out. But what programming language did you actually use to make this thing simple for us? It's JavaScript. I mean, it's the language of the web. It's actually not. We use like some Postgres for the database, Node.js and the server. I almost want to say this is the whole point of the company is to make that it's not relevant anymore. Similarly to today, people don't worry about what kind of, you know, very low level technology devices are using at the motherboard level, whether it's your phone or your laptop. Because the abstraction has been written in a way that you don't need to worry about it. Some engineers have taken care of it at Apple's or offices or other places. 
and then you just use the API, like what they've created to create something fairly quickly. We do the same thing at another layer on top of it. So the whole point is that you don't need to worry. My goal, if we do well, is that people would not know what JavaScript is 10 years from now. Yeah, no, I'm feeling you, but I'm just curious how you're able to figure this shit out. You made it easy for me if I want to mess around with it, but it doesn't seem like there was a manual for you guys to figure this out, right? No, I mean, we had to do a lot of pretty creative things, sometimes non-orthodox, actually. Some of the technology choices we've made, some engineers may be like, wow, why are you doing that that way? But it turns out that we think it was the best way to handle some of the problems. I mean, it's a hard thing. It's a hard problem to solve. It's been tackled by a lot of people, but it's really hard. But the reward is to create something that most people think is impossible, which to me is extremely exciting. So I'll take the challenge. So you're doing more of the front end stuff and your co-founder was doing more of the back end stuff to make sure it all worked properly. So someone like me could use Bubble. Yeah, you could see that way. I mean, in practice, it's a little bit blurrier because there are some stuff I was doing on the back end, some stuff that Josh was doing on the front end. But yeah, essentially, yes. And what point in the story should we jump to? Because we talked a lot about the first couple of years, which was like 2012 to 2014-ish, if you will, when you started getting meaningful salary. What part of the timeline should we jump into now and talk about your company? I guess we could jump into the new era of the company, which is being venture capital backed, like venture backed with uh, VCs. Yeah, what year was that? So that was last year in April. Okay. It was a big decision. If you don't mind, there has to be something in between that we could talk about, even your first hires and stuff. Yeah, so the first five years till like summer of 2017, growing organically nicely, actually. Are you marketing this thing at all? Or like, how do you get this product out? At that time, we weren't. I mean, it was mostly word of mouth, community driven. We had very strong online community that was talking a lot. And so that creates some activity that people notice. But we didn't do any Google ad or anything like this at the time. Still today, we're actually just starting right now this year. So in 2020, so it's very recent. Our philosophy for the first seven years was really, if you build a great product, people notice it and they use it. It's not true at massive scale. At some point, you know, marketing is something you have to do, especially when the market becomes more competitive. But in the early years, I really think it's the most powerful way to invest your time is in building something great that people actually love using. And so between 2015, which was our first public stunt, launching the product on Product Hunt, which is a platform where people start launch businesses, tech startups. And the first hire in 2017 was basically Josh and I onboarding new users. At that point, it got fairly automatable, like we didn't need to talk too much to users. I was still handling most customer requests myself personally. And so we were going that way and decided to hire our first engineers in June 2017. How'd that go? From that, we went from two people like Josh and I to six people, three months. That was the initial core team. And since then, we've been hiring people on a regular basis to 20 today. So you hired the three people pretty quick, you're saying, right? Even though you just hired one, you sound like it was three off the bat? Yeah, in about three months or something. Four people in three months. The two of y'all, were y'all 50-50 partners in the company? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. It sounds like you must have built up your bank account pretty high if you're all of a sudden hiring three developers right away. Is that how you did it? Yeah, I mean, the revenue at that time started being real. I think when we started hiring people, we were close to a million dollars AR. That's a little bit less, maybe 800,000, but that definitely can pay for an engineering team. A small engineering team, but it pays for people. And what was your overhead? The overhead is low, honestly. I mean, the office was like maybe $3,000. And then you have the servers that, depending on months to months, maybe like 10K or something. Tech startups, the main cost is engineering talent. So that's the most expensive, which is precisely why we're doing Bubble. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense. I was just trying to make sure if you have a co-founder, how you decide when you're going to hire. It sounded like you were smart enough to save up, again, in y'all's business account as much as money as you could before you started hiring, but then you started hiring right away. I think a lot of founders kind of go over this, like, when should I make that first hire? Do I have enough money in my account or whatever? 
did y'all just look at a certain number that you had in your account? And you're like, okay, now it's time. Yeah. I mean, it was a company bank account. Yeah. So that's pretty much what we did. Okay. So you start making those hires in 2017 and then what else might've happened? Was there been any obstacles up to this point? Cause it doesn't sound like it really. No, I mean, a ton of obstacles. Tell me one. It's a very hard job because what we're trying to do, you know, we're replacing the CTO of all these companies. And so it's a lot of pressure because people bet their businesses on top of us. And so they care. They care more than, you know, the dating app they're using. They care more than Facebook.com that they're using to talk with their friends. Like it's probably the most important web service they use with their email. And email is handled usually by Gmail, which is a fairly big company. You know, Google is a pretty large company. Um, we were just two guys. And at some point we had something like, when it was just the two of us were having like about 80,000 users. At that point, probably like a thousand users. Businesses were using us for all their IT services, you don't really have the right to make a mistake. But mistakes happen sometimes. Sometimes you have bugs. So it's a lot of pressure. You have to be very careful and very dedicated. And you don't sleep much, honestly. Like it's a pretty intense. The obstacle being like, what you're doing is very critical for your users and you're still a very small company. And combining these two things is very hard. Right. Because it sounded like it's just kind of business to business, if you will, because it matters if I'm running a business on your business, I care a lot more, like you're saying, than a dating app that might have broke. I can just go do another dating app. I don't really care that much. But if someone's going to try to build revenue and build a business off using your software, then obviously you want it to work. Well, you said there are some bugs. Can you give us an example of like the biggest bug that you might have had early on? Like any tech company, you know, back in the days, we would have a few outages, basically, when, you know, the server goes down for like five minutes or 10 minutes. And I mean, it still happens to tech companies. I think last year, Google, uh, Facebook had a big outage, you know? Yeah. I mean, it happens with all the companies, but I'm just wondering, like... Can it be worse than that? Than being out for five minutes? No, no. Or being down. Right. Those are the bad bugs. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the biggest technical hurdle that you overcame? Because obviously, you've improved the product since then, but there has to be some type of, other than being down for five minutes... The most challenging thing we have to solve, but it's not really a bug, it's like inherently difficult because of what we're trying to do, is to create something that performs extremely well, even if while letting people do whatever they want. Because when you let people build whatever they want, especially if they're non-technical, they don't actually think in terms of how optimal the design can be for performance. And we have behind the scene, we have to make sure it still works greatly. And that's hard. And it's still something we're working on today. I think it's going to be a lifelong battle, to be honest. We need to always improve things behind the scene to automatically take whatever not optimized thing people have done, built on bubble, and making it optimized when it's running. Because people don't optimize it when they build it, but they expect it to be very powerful and fast when they use it or their users use it. And that is the hardest technical challenge. It seems like it makes sense because you want to add features, but then you don't want to slow it down too much. Again, if someone's built a WordPress site or whatever, you could download 30 plugins, right? And put it all on one page and it might look pretty and you might want it the way you want to run. But then if Google scans it and it takes 30 seconds to have that page upload, then that doesn't help at all. It might look like it worked perfectly, but then once you actually functionally do it with all these plugins you might have, then it slows it down. And it's not even worth it. So basically you're saying that's kind of your battle on the back end of what you made, right? Exactly. Yep. Okay. Do you want to jump to actually getting venture capital, you're saying, in 2019 then? Yeah. I mean, we can talk about this. That's more traditional story, I guess, because a lot of startups have been through that. So people are more familiar with it, but you find investors basically convince them that what you're doing is useful. And then they make an offer to take some stake in your company and give you some cash to grow faster. So that's how we ended up raising $6 million. What do you use that for? Is this now for the marketing time, now that you feel like your product's good enough? Both for marketing and hiring engineers or like success people. Gotcha. When you get venture capital, do you tell them like, hey, we're going to use 3 million for marketing or it's like a budget outlay, if you will? 
Yeah, yes, this is part of the of the fundraising process is to discuss what you will do with the money, obviously. You have a budget that you share with them and in practice, business situation changes. And so it's never going to be exactly what you plan, but that's fine. So have you used all the money up already? No, no, no. Half of it? Probably 30% of it, like a little bit, 20%. I mean, usually you raise money for the next two years or something. Right. Was that interesting at all or any advice for anyone who's looking for venture capital if they're going to that space? That particular space of no code is really hot right now. So because it's hot, it's usually fairly easy to raise capital today, I think, because investors see that there is an opportunity and someone will win. And so many people are willing to take bets. Well, is your venture capital firm in New York? Because you're in New York. We hear a lot about money and the lead is in San Francisco, actually. Right. That's where it sounds like they all are, right? No. I mean, you have some firms in New York, but there you have more in San Francisco. It's not even a piece of advice that people know that you should do it that way. It's, it's really much better to go to investors when you have some early product and some early user data to show that people love what you're doing. I think it's getting harder and harder to raise money, just an idea. If you would have gone year one, you're saying with only like 10 customers, then I have a feeling that you probably wouldn't be able to raise it. I think at that time, that would have been more challenging. I don't know. I mean, we didn't try, but yeah, I guess that it would have been more challenging. I guess the biggest challenge that we had on your whole story was a bug for a while, right? Was there anything else if, looking back? Because I feel like that's what most people can relate to, these hurdles that you might have come over. Well, today's the biggest challenge is convincing users that it's worth trying because of the skepticism that I mentioned earlier. There is a huge work of evangelization. A lot of people in technology that still deeply believe that technology should be created by engineers which is something I really think is wrong. But if you think about it, the people that control the technology space, most of them are engineers. For instance, I remember, so I'm French, right? And last year or two years ago, Tim Cook went to, so CEO of Apple, went to Paris and had an interview in the equivalent of the French New Yorker, so this kind of magazine, telling, you know, people should learn code instead of English, like French people. And telling my advice to French parents is to have their kids learn code, not learn English. Well, he's doing that because he doesn't think that technology can be changed and be codeless or no code, which is what we think. We have to fight this. When the CEO of the biggest company in the world says that, as a small company, it's a pretty hard work to evangelize. It's not a bug. It's just we're trying to do something that's very much against what everybody has been saying for the last 30, 40 years. And so that takes a lot of energy and that's hard. That's why, you know, I'm always happy to talk on podcasts like this as a way to convey this mission, because the more people hear about it, the more we manage to change mindsets. But this is a very slow process. Have you thought about getting it into like schools? I feel like they'd be open where it's easier for kids to kind of yeah. play around with it. We actually did our pilot at Harvard Business School. And today, a lot of colleges are using us. Even some high schools actually are using us. That's what I was going to say. Even high schools, I feel like would be better because they're more technically inclined. And I feel like it's simpler where maybe people get to, I don't know what type of schools you're talking to when you're saying there's universities using it. Is it like a business program? Or I couldn't imagine anyone in learning programming that probably be like, oh, I'm too sophisticated for this, right? Right. It's more people that want to learn how to build products, which is different from programming a little bit, or want to start companies. Right. So what's your plan for the marketing? Because it sounds like that's your main driver over the next couple of years now that you've got things pretty well settled, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, well, engineering is always something you need to take care of as you scale. I mean, so it's some work. But yeah, for the marketing front, we're doing a couple of things. One, we're really putting in some systems in place to leverage our community and empower our community members. Today, we have like very active users that actually organize meetups without our support, just on their own, because they like talking about bubble. And so we're putting things in place so that people can do that in a more efficient way. Because at the end of the day, I truly believe this is the best marketing strategy when your users are marketing yourself, your product. So we're doing this. We're spending a lot of time with accelerators and incubators. 
telling people, hey, don't lose months and tens of thousands of dollars trying to find engineers. Get your product, build it on Bubble quickly, like in two weeks or something, launch it and get feedback very quickly for a very low cost. And so we work a lot with, you know, that's where we work with schools, incubators, accelerators. That's probably the combination of these two things we're going to be pushing in 2020. Yeah. How about using your French aspect? I mean, have you ever thought about that? How would I use that in the US? I mean, I feel like people in France are entrepreneurial inclined, like in France, probably not as much, I guess you're saying. Yes, I've been using that. We certainly had some press in France because it's easier, but I love my country, but it's not a very big market either. So we need to get big in the US. You got to use what you're good at, right? Or what ends you have. And if you're French, that's obviously something that you could use. That's the reason, again, I was saying schools. I don't know if there's other types. Well, schools, incubators, people who code, uh, nonprofits, a lot of places where you can do that. What's been the best thing for you marketing wise so far now that you've actually kind of dipped your toes in it, it sounds like? So far, the best thing has been the community aspect. That's where a lot of our growth is coming. Interesting. All right. Well, like I said, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Do you have any last words of wisdom or advice for anyone who's starting a business? Check out your bubble.io. Well, obviously I'm biased, <laughs> but obviously I would say for people that have already started working on something or people that haven't, but have some ideas you have today and bubble is one of these tools, but you have a few other ways to test things. Like it's getting easier, increasingly easy to try and test things. And I would highly recommend people before, you know, trying to put a big plan, trying to find to hire some people and raise some capital, really just get out there and test your idea. It's actually easier than you think with the recent development of technology. You have no excuse. So please do it. Appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And said, if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best place for them to reach you? Yeah. I mean, best is when people sign up to Bubbles, they get an email from me automatically. So they'll see my email address. Usually the best way to reach the team is going to be like contact at bubble.io. I'm on Twitter. At, uh, I have a complicated last name, but if you search for Emmanuel Bubble on Twitter, you'll find me. It's at uh, Eastrashnov. And otherwise, yeah, the forum is also the Bubble forum, like forum.bubble.io is where our community lives and we're very present there. Right. And I guess on there, if someone signed up for like a free membership or whatever, they can get into that forum to learn more? Yeah, of course. Okay, cool. That way people can figure out how to use it if they have issues on it or whatnot. Yep. Appreciate you coming on, sharing your story. And thank you again for taking the time to tell us how you started Bubble. Thank you. I mean, it was great to be here. There's another website called familiar with that nick you know about that yeah no? but they are but they're expensive right yeah, yeah. But, but i think they'll still be cheaper than 150k for an app right? <laughs> yeah 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 that's, that's, that's for sure am i that's getting ridiculous. am i getting binned over here is that what you're trying to tell me you're saying you're being really stupid okay so what yeah, well you, you don't have a video call on so we can't tell if you're getting bent over. <laughs> <laughs> That was a preview of our first group Patreon call. We're doing these group calls on the first Friday of each month. So if you want to join us, then become a Patreon. Plus, if you're a Patreon and you miss any of the calls, well, as you heard, we'll be posting the recording of the calls on our Patreon feed. So you'll never feel left out. Of course, those calls will be beep free. So you'll actually be able to hear the tools that we're using to grow our businesses. So don't be shy. Become a Patreon and join us on our next group call.